Hello and welcome to the first episode of the brand new It's Nice That podcast. This is the show where we talk to leading designers, illustrators, creative directors and photographers about the delights and dramas of being a creative. We want to scrub away the Instagram gloss and hear the honest truth from people who've built careers out of their creativity. How do they come up with their best ideas? What's the secret to staying inspired? And what happens when creative projects go awry? My name is Matt Alagaya and I'm the editor-in-chief of It's Nice That. And today I'll be talking to the renowned illustrator Christoph Neiman and hearing how he picks a medium to match his message and about how he spent his lockdowns quietly sketching gorillas in Berlin Zoo. That's all coming up on the It's Nice That podcast. First, though, I'm delighted to say that I'm joined for this first episode of the podcast by my colleague Lucy Borton, our senior editor. Hello, Lucy. Hello. How's it going? We're we're talking on a very chilly day in February. How's uh, how's your day going? Yeah, it's been all right. Not much news here, really. Just been working on a few different projects, which will soon to be coming out, and it's nice that. Very, very exciting. Yeah, I'm sure we'll see those very soon. Now, as you know, I guess I interviewed Christoph Neiman for this episode, but it's worth saying that you've actually you've gone one step further because a couple of years ago you went and visited Christoph in Berlin and got to see his studio. Just talk us through a little bit about what that was like. Yeah, it was a few years ago now. I was in Berlin for that animation festival, Pictoplasma, and Christoph very kindly had me at his studio for the afternoon. It's an amazing studio. It's like an old shop front. It's down this like really lovely street with lots of like trendy design shops. And you kind of don't notice that it's his studio until you see a few like artworks in the window. And I think before the pandemic, it used to kind of operate as a studio and a shop. So people could kind of come in and see his work. And I think they used to do a few open studios there as well, which is really nice. I remember that I think it's in the piece that we did that because this just blew me away that when you go to the bathroom in Christoph's studio I don't know how it works like a device so that when you shut the door the radio comes on straight away so no one can hear you in the bathroom which is just (laughs) a lovely touch (laughs) and quite a nice example of how thoughtful I think Christoph is in kind of making people feel comfortable and yeah, just one step ahead of thinking of everything. Would love to have that at home. So good. <laughs> Absolutely. I feel like there's that blog of reviews of restaurant bathrooms, isn't there, around <laughs> London. I feel like if you could do that for studios, you'd learn a lot about yeah. Uh, yeah, creatives and their process. You've also, you've had a listen to the interview um, that we're going to be playing in just a moment. But before we do, what particularly stood out to you from that conversation? Yeah, no, it's so lovely. And it was really nice to hear about, I think in particular, how his practice has changed over the pandemic and that kind of brief he set himself in going to the zoo every day. And I can't remember exactly what he said, but how it was the most, a project that he hadn't been interrupted on for such a long time which was really lovely but I think also with someone like Christoph who is so respected and has done pretty much everything that every illustrator dreams of from like New York covers to books and shows that he still mentions how excited he gets when he sees someone like reading a newspaper and sees one of his illustrations beside it it's just it's nice to know that that feeling never goes away definitely yeah no he's so he's so incredibly charming I mean I remember when he did Nicer Tuesdays our event in London yeah he came to the pub with with the team afterwards for a few drinks and uh, just the most charming lovely man and I hope that comes across in the interview as well but no totally I think the way he talks about the pandemic and the way that that changed his his creative practice and his process 
is really fascinating. I think he said, yeah, it was almost like the first time since university that he'd done a project where he hadn't been interrupted by something else coming in and was just so focused on that work. Pretty extraordinary. I thought it was also really interesting, some of the things he was saying around how valuable that critiquing of your work that you get at university is. And I hadn't really thought about it in that respect and sometimes think about the crits at my university days is very harrowing, but he's so right on reflection. You're like, yes, that was very important and informative. Yeah, definitely. There's some really good stuff about kind of creative education in there as well. Looking back at his kind of his own education and thinking about crits with uh, Heinz Edelmann, who's the person he studied under, I think, in Stuttgart. Lucy, thanks so much for your time. It's been it's been great hearing from you. And uh, thanks for your thoughts on this interview. Without further ado now, let's hear that chat with, with Christoph Niemann. Hi, Christoph. Thanks so much for joining us today and uh, welcome to the It's Nice That podcast. Glad to be here. How's everything in uh, in Berlin this week? <laughs> well, it's like as, as seasonally grey, as they say. As exciting as May is in Berlin, January is predictable drab. <laughs> I remember I, I used to live in Berlin and it definitely was very grey in January. I can remember that well. I'm sure anyone who's been there will remember that. <laughs> Now, for our conversation today, Christoph, we're going to be looking at your work and your creative process and how it's evolved and changed over the years. And while we're doing that, I want to also tease out some lessons for all of us, anyone who wants to be an artist or designer and develop their own practice. So I guess a fitting place to start would be right at the beginning, because your time at university, it sounds like it was incredibly formative for you. I guess it is for everyone. But you studied under the illustrator and designer Heinz Edelmann, and he really challenged you to rethink what your work could be. Yes, uh, and it was uh, quite challenging indeed. For this, it's also important why I studied what I studied. And it was a very simple reason. I like to draw. And people, for all the time I remembered, told me, oh, you draw really well. So, you know, what do you do? You kind of like study the next best thing, which was graphic design and illustration. And so ultimately, I went to school and then I could spend all my day drawing. It was super exciting. For the first two years, it was kind of like basic training. So you spent like new drawing, life drawing, animation, typesetting. And then you kind of like would eventually graduate to the master class with Edelman. And then everything changed because for the first time, somebody told me very <laughs> in no uncertain terms that he was not very fond of what I did. And I think I was an okay craftsman, but it was all, for me, it was all about proving with every drawing how well I can draw, whatever that means. And he just like, looked at it and was like, oh, God, no, it just, like, doesn't work at all. The problem was that until then, criticism always meant you don't draw well enough. You have to get your proportions better, like your highlights. And he was talking about something that I didn't know what he was getting at. He talked about bad drawing and different styles and was like, why? So essentially, I spent a year, and it was a decision I was very proud of also in retrospect to say, despite not knowing what he was talking about, to say, I'm going to give it a year. I'm young enough. I have all this time at university. Let's just spend time trying to find out what the hell he's talking about. And over the course of that year, did you find out what, what he was talking about? Did you get to a point where you realized, okay, this is what he's aiming for. This is what he wants from me. It was a very, very slow process. But uh, I think at, at some point, it kind of dawned on me and I would produce really kind of stacks and stacks of doodles in all different techniques, pencils and ink and paint and whatnot. And then he would come in and walk through these drawings and go like, kind of like left pile, right pile, like no, 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 no. Yeah, this one we we're not thinking is totally terrible. It was always like kind of was like the ultimate compliment. <laughs> and that was maybe the biggest challenge that sometimes you would pick one as not so terrible, but I had no idea why this one, why not all the other ones. And so at the beginning the ratio was 
literally like 98 to 2. And then very slowly it would get closer to like he would pick 5 and 95 were sorted out. And then also by observing other people's crit, I kind of slowly understood what he meant. And ultimately it was about using your craft to support an idea and not the other way around. So some ideas require a very simple, sometimes maybe even crude or bad drawing. Other ideas require more of like the whole orchestra. And it was just a concept that was completely foreign to me. And within that year, I slowly started understanding what he was talking about. And I think today, I consider this the foundation of my work. I work in different styles, but it's not so much about, oh, today I feel like watercolor, but I really try to think about like why is a certain style beneficial to make a certain idea come across to a viewer? I guess soon after university, you moved then to New York and uh, I guess it was to make it as an illustrator. And it seems like that was really a time for you when you were learning the trade, the kind of fundamental basics of, of what the job entails, you know, hitting deadlines, being a dependable collaborator. Is that fair? Is that what that was like as a young man there? This experience in school with Edelman, it really stuck with me, this idea of like, Give it some time to like to to find out the things that you cannot know and that you cannot ask other people. In the same way, how I dare said, like I'm gonna give it a year. I also said I'm gonna go to New York. I knew through annuals and and stuff. I knew that the work that was being produced there was extremely exciting for me. I had no idea what exactly to expect, but I said, you know, one year I can somehow make it one way or another. And then I just uh, went there. I thought it was super exciting, this whole idea of newspapers, magazines. That was exactly what I wanted to do. I got jobs fairly quickly, which was amazing. Life there was much more expensive than I ever had ever anticipated. So it, it worked out better than I thought. But then I realized it was actually necessary. <laughs> it worked out better because I had no idea what kind of like living in a place like New York and working and uh, how much that cost. So otherwise you would have lasted maybe like two weeks rather than the year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> but then it was really the kind of the day-to-day stuff because deadlines didn't mean a week. It often meant a day or two. I was doing a lot of work for the Times. The first two months, it was just painful. It was really just like not being able to like sleep at night because you know the next morning you you kind of have to show some ideas. It was kind of brutal training, but after two or three months, it's another sort of craft than the drawing. It's just kind of it's almost you create a headline and you know you can deliver an unembarrassing solution on command. And once I felt I was kind of hitting my stride with that, it was really fantastic. And I love this kind of fast-paced environment that you do a drawing and then the next morning you're in the subway and you see people with a paper and there's, there's your drawing. There, there was just really the ultimate kick ever still is to this day, I think. Yeah, that must be an amazing feeling. It's one of the things I wanted to ask you about is is how you as an illustrator work at kind of different speeds. Sometimes you'll have, you know, a week to to finish a commission, sometimes it's just a few hours. How do you manage that? I guess that that kind of range of different metabolisms. What's amazing, for me, there was a training and I'm not a doctor and I don't pretend I could imagine what being a doctor means, but it felt like being in an emergency room. We're just like, things are hitting you. You have time to think, but you know it's you have three hours and in three hours you have to have a solution. And it has to be as good as you can possibly do it. But the worst thing you can do is nothing. Like printing a white page is not an option. And often it was also interesting to see that under pressure, under these crazy deadlines, you would come up with stuff that you know with the luxury of more time, you definitely would have screwed them up by overthinking, by um, kind of going in whatever crazy direction. This whole mindset of working on command and being able to like turn on the engine, I realized that even today when I have a month or so, there are moments, even when you're just painting for yourself, where you have to like turn on a switch and be in full focus mode. 
in a way, I feel like with the absence of deadline, the skill is as necessary when you're kind of completely working for yourself on, on a very artsy project. Um, so even though I learned it under these circumstances, I think this kind of hardcore professionalism is, is, is a skill that's necessary no matter what. I guess that all led then to your first New Yorker cover in 2001. And that wasn't that long after you'd uh, actually started living in New York. Just talk us through what that meant to you back then, that first New Yorker cover. Did it feel like a milestone at that time? Absolutely. And it was... Certainly, this idea of a New Yorker cover for, for an illustrator, I think for most illustrators, or for many, is it's kind of like the Olympic kind of games where, where you feel it's, it's something you cannot strive for in a way. There's no path where you can say you check these boxes and then you get it. It's just it happens or it doesn't happen because the whole process is, to say the least, you know, kind of like three-dimensional. When you're at a newsstand and you see your own cover with, with that logo, it was a huge kick. What was... Very special about that is also that the New Yorker covers are not tied to an article. So there they are, a freestanding piece of art. So it's really your contribution and your story. And in a way that kind of hinted at work I would do later, it was not so much me reacting to a story, which was something I was kind of fairly comfortable at the time, but where you actually go out and say, this is an image that I think is relevant today. Yeah, it's definitely a very unusual process they have over there. I mean, I'm curious to hear what, what the art director usually tells you. I mean, what do they come to you with? by way of a brief? Nothing. You come to them. And I will say that this is the only pitch I do. Usually when clients come to me with a, any idea for a pitch, I say, thank you very much. Because I think pitches are actually really bad. They're bad for our profession. They are bad for the creative process because you play differently when you play with the competition in mind than when you really try to come up with the best solution. There's like, I think trust is extremely important. And this is something that with pitches usually doesn't work. With the New Yorker, I have now a good relationship with the art department. I know when I send in a drawing, like it will be looked at and I'm now at ease with the whole process. But it's really about you as an illustrator and it's really that anybody can send in ideas to observe the news, observe what's around you, like from your personal angle, from the kind of official angle, see how the season, the time or so relates to what's happening, and then come up with an image that you think is kind of the visual headline for this week. This is the open assignment. And then the art direction then starts once you send in the drawing and say, how you can we refine it? How can we make it more legible or tighter or weirder? So the art direction is important, but the first step, and this is unusual, is you have to take the initiative. I mean, I suppose back then the most important relationships for you as an illustrator were with the art directors of magazines and newspapers, as you've kind of touched on. One thing that's obviously changed massively since then is the existence of social media in an illustrator's life. I guess the change really started around, yeah, the beginning of the 2010s. I mean, you personally now have a following of over 1.1 million on Instagram alone. How has that change impacted you and your career? Well, the first change that happened, I started doing a column for the New York Times. It was a great format. Brian Ray was the art director at the time. He asked me to come up with stories that I would write and draw, completely open brief, incredibly scary, but exactly the challenge that I wanted. The biggest difference to all the other work I made was not only that it was longer and, and more open, but for the first time, you would actually get feedback from readers. Because before that, all the work, even though you, you know whatever the New Yorker has, one million readers... You would never hear back from them. Like you make a drawing, you send it out into space, and you assume that some aliens look at it or not, uh, because the only feedback you would ever get was from the art director 
who might call you again. And so for the first time, this stuff was online and there were comments where people said, oh, I get this, I like this, or I don't get this. And so for the first time, you actually had a relationship to readers. And it was in a way before social media, it was like kind of 2009, but it changed this whole dynamic of who you actually felt you worked for. With social media, it was the next step that all of a sudden you could just throw out, uh, out a drawing and independently from your followership, you know, if you have something on Twitter, there's a chance that it could be seen by a million people if the algorithm is in your favor. And that has changed the whole understanding of what I do. Because there, I remember this time when you, I was a student or first came to New York and you have some drawings and you have it in your portfolio, but art directors don't seem to care. And you know that the drawing doesn't exist unless it's published. So you can sit there, you can walk around with a sandwich board down Broadway and hope that somebody sees it. But the gatekeepers of the publishers, newspapers, museums, galleries, without them, you had nothing. And all of a sudden, you have a direct contact to an audience, which is also a huge pressure. And we go on for three hours about the downsides of uh, social media. But that is a huge game changer that I think every artist has to reckon with one way or another, but you can't ignore it. You mentioned there the downsides of social media, and you're right, we could probably talk for many hours on that, and we won't. You did touch on the pressure there, and I think it's an interesting one because I've speak to a lot of illustrators, and I know that some people feel they're almost like a slave to Instagram. You know, They feel like they have to publish something on, on there every day, or otherwise they've failed. Do you also kind of feel that way? And I guess, if so, how do you overcome that sense of... Yeah, being under pressure. I definitely feel a pressure to produce stuff. I think every artist, they have certain things that they're comfortable with and other things that they're less comfortable with. One thing that I know I'm relatively comfortable with, I'm proficient. I produce work all the time. I don't know what else to do with my life. So I know I don't have a shortage of ideas. Whether they all up to snuff and worthy of entertaining a larger audience is a different question. But if I were painting in oil and doing one huge landscape every two months, of course, I would be at a gigantic disadvantage. And I think this is a problem, like one of the many, many problems with Instagram, that if you work quickly, if you have kind of like a, like a vast portfolio, it's, it's so much easier to play with that. Also, like that everything that works at this tiny format. As far as that goes, I'm in an okay place. But there is, of course, and I think this is the most, I think, creatively the trickiest thing is not so much when something works that you feel under pressure to repeat that or if something doesn't work that you feel oh i did something wrong and this urge the the, the algorithm messes with your head to repeat yourself to like try to beat the system like how can i make the drawing that kind of generates a certain amount of clicks and this is so dangerous or to, and i think the most difficult challenge is to kind of get this out of your head and start as if there was no audience and then post it and see what happens but to separate the creation from the reception it's so hard as well particularly when there's you know countable likes right you can actually see exactly how many hearts you've got on that post yeah it, it makes it very very difficult not to think about that and not to think about you know that being the value of your work i guess yeah we touched on a few of the kind of big milestones in your in your life and career. And I guess another big one was the series Abstract launching on, on Netflix. I guess you were already a pretty big name in the creative world before that series, but that must have rocketed you to a new level of fame and recognition. What was that like for you? It was fantastic. The whole process was fantastic. Scott Dadditch, the producer, and Morgan Neville, the director. Scott, I knew before. Morgan, I became friends with in this whole process. It was, first of all, a great professional experience to kind of be part of this kind of level of kind of production professionalism. When it came out, I, you know, I was watching Netflix, but I didn't really have a 
notion of how many people actually then see something like this. And before that, I think Stefan Sagmeister once said, like, being a famous designer is like being a famous electrician. So it's, <laughs> he might be known in a kind of certain crowd, but of course, it was always the work that people might know. Say, oh, yeah, I've seen that piece in here and there. And all of a sudden, of course, I was there like, with my face and with my person. So sometimes people would come like on the street or in the airport and go, oh, I saw your thing. And it was definitely odd. It's nice because people usually come and are very, very friendly. So it's never like, oh, I hate your guts and I hate your work. That would be a different thing. It gave me a different kind of awareness of how I, I always try to define myself entirely through my work. And all of a sudden you have this kind of like the second element of kind of like your public persona, which has nothing really to do with your private persona. It just looks like that persona that has changed. But I think in a, in a, in a small way, it's like what we talked about with Instagram, with social media. I think all of us are one way or another forced to develop that avatar of ourselves and to live through that, to have some sort of kind of like a presence out there. And sometimes it's more kind of like you have to deal with it in another way, but in a way it's non-optional. Sadly, or I still think the jury is out on how to judge. Maybe it's not that sad, but yeah, you're certainly right. It's definitely for a lot of people in the creative world, not an option for sure. I want to kind of bring things around to, I guess, a bit more of a a more recent milestone. I mean, we wanted, I wanted to touch on the pandemic because at least it feels from the outside, like your practice had to shift quite a lot during that time. You ended up doing this whole series of, of artworks looking at animals in, in the Berlin Zoo. Just talk me through why you decided to embark on, on that particular project. The last couple of years, I've been traveling a lot and I did a lot of kind of travel pieces for, for National Geographic, but I also did this kind of political reporting for the Times magazine where I went to Tallinn and to London. And I really enjoyed that to kind of go out there and, and see what happens. It's kind of like this unpredictability of travel I liked a lot. And one of the many, many, many crazy things with COVID was on the one hand, of course, it was insanely unpredictable because nobody knew what happens next, like what is happening to begin with. But on the other hand, of course, it was the ultimate predictability because every day was exactly the same. I couldn't travel anywhere. I actually didn't want to travel anywhere because it, everything was so scary. And the only thing that was open in Berlin were the zoos. So I started going there and thought, well, I might as well start drawing animals, not because I was so incredibly inspired by them, but just because they were there. And it felt right. And you know, animals are always great. And I like this whole mix of architecture, the cages and the animals. And what was interesting artistically was that I think it was the first time since art school that I had spent weeks, if not months, uninterrupted only on one project, where every day, including weekends, I would go to the studio and I started doing lino cuts, which is a very challenging medium. And you realize how it's kind of frustrating about how you become better. And also then I was, I was aware of that moment that you in normal and non-COVID times, that's the moment when you have a trip and you go somewhere else and go, ah, that was kind of fun. But in this case, actually then not stopping, but continuing. And how after some time you get comfortable with a certain craft, you can like know how to go around certain difficult parts of a drawing and cheat your way around. And then going past that and actually saying like, no, I want to try to figure it out and how you then actually get better just from a purely craft perspective to how to handle like a certain kind of format, a certain kind of difficult composition. And it was interesting. It, you know, it doesn't make up for all the, the kind of like the sadness and the heartbreak of COVID, but there was a 
good thing to kind of get back in touch with this sense of, and I think every artist has this, this really deep connection to the work and how you feel like when you spend time with your tools and your paper, there is something happening. It's not happiness in a, I'm smiling, I'm so happy kind of thing, but it's a very um, rewarding intensity. And that definitely came out through that project. And I was kind of very happy that I had that to cling on to. You talk there, Christoph, about, about lino cuts and about the craft that's required with, with that medium. Throughout this conversation, something's kind of cropped up a few times and that's the importance of, of repetition from your time at university through to your time creating that, that zoo project. And people talk about the, the 10,000 hours idea. How important is the idea of kind of honing your craft to you as an illustrator? I think craft is insanely important. There is a moment where craft can become an excuse, where you can hide behind craft. And I think there's like a lot of projects where people say, oh, I'm going to draw a butterfly for every year, for every day for three years. And like a publisher friend of mine once called this kind of lazy ambition, where essentially, yes, it's a lot of work, but all you do is put in the hours, but you don't go to a painful place. So I think ultimately there comes this this moment where you have to take risks and kind of trust that something crazy will happen if you veer off script. But I think it has to happen on a foundation of craft. So I think these magic moments, they require craft. So you can't have those without the craft, but you can't cheat your way to a good solution just with craft. Unfortunately, it's not that easy. But that said, I think just by having a very good command of your kind of your drawing skills, but also your conceptual skills, you can have a really fantastic life as a professional artist. That's all it takes. And then whether you kind of have these very special moments that make you happy or that really touch somebody's heart, this is kind of unpredictable. But like the stuff that you need to make a living and to kind of sleep at night, that actually, I think, can be done just through practice. Thanks very much. That's a perfect place to leave it. Christoph Neiman, thank you so much for joining us on the It's Nice That podcast. It was so nice chatting with you. Thank you. That was the absolutely peerless Christoph Neiman there. If you want to hear a longer version of that interview, well, you can by joining Extra Nice, It's Nice That's membership program. You'll get your hands on a host of benefits and goodies, including a bit more time and a few extra insights from Christoph. Please do check it out. That's nearly all we have time for on the It's Nice That podcast. But before we head off, we've got one last treat in store. Each episode, we're going to be hearing from a creative somewhere in the world who's going to tell us about a place in their city that keeps them inspired. For this first outing, we're going to hear from the illustrator Cécile Dormeau, who's currently living and working in Montpellier in the south of France. The place there that's keeping her inspired is a shop called Etat Dame. Apologies for my terrible French pronunciation there. Here is Cécile. Hi, I'm Cécile Dormeau. I'm a French illustrator and I'm currently staying in Montpellier in the south of France for two months. So today I'm going to be telling you about somewhere here that really inspires me. It's a shop in the center of the city where I love to go. It's like a little museum for me and I love to look all the stuff they have in here. So there you can find candles in the shape of a baguette or in the shape of a salami. You can find a gigolo corkscrew with a leopard underwear, a frog vase, a Freddie Mercury mask, spoons in a plain shape, a Scottish terrier lamp and Buddhist golden bracelets. Uh, the walls are covered with Mexican decorations, especially like Exvoto hearts, but also Frida Kahlo portraits as a mermaid. There are a lot of Virgin Mary bottles, and for pan enthusiasts like me, you can as well buy the Virgin Mary as a bottle of extra virgin 
olive oil. You can buy a giant turkey mask, garlic Christmas decoration, a giant plastic lobster, gardening gnomes. They have also a collection of cards with different themes such as where does this cheese come from or how to read palm and how long does these animals live. You can also find a whoopee cushion or fart party, which I love. And I promised myself today that I will not buy anything, but I just bought myself a small Virgin Mary in a snow globe and I cannot walk and record myself in the same time I cannot breathe anymore thank you very much and see you soon That was the lovely Cécile Dormeau telling us about a weird and wonderful boutique in Montpellier many thanks to Cécile And I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. My thanks to Christoph Neiman and to my colleague Lucy Borton for joining me here earlier on this inaugural episode. I'm sure you've all listened to podcasts before, so this won't come as a surprise. But if you have enjoyed listening to this, it would make us very happy if you could write a review on your favorite podcast app. And even better, if you could also subscribe to the show. The It's Nice That podcast is produced by Palm Tree Island. Our theme music was written and performed by Sounds Like These. Thanks very much for listening and see you next time.